Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Please stay tuned at the end of the episode to hear a message from Chris Scalia in AEI's academic programs department. Joining us today on Banter is Diana Shav, a non-resident senior fellow with us at AEI, where her work focuses on American political thought and history, particularly Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, Montesquieu, and the relevance of core American ideals to contemporary political challenges and debates. She's also a professor of political science at Loyola University, Maryland, where she has taught for almost three decades. An expert in political philosophy, Dr. Schaub has lectured on a variety of topics and participated in conferences around the country. She's contributed chapters to multiple books on Shakespeare, liberal education, women, and religion, and is the author of several books. Her most recent, which we're going to discuss today, His Greatest Speeches, How Lincoln Moved the Nation, was published by St. Martin's Press in 2021. Uh, Welcome to Banter, Diana. Thank you, Phoebe. Diana, I'm very happy to hear you, uh, have you with us today. And um, Phoebe, I want to, I want to, I want to go a little slower on the uh, title of the book. Mm-hmm. His greatest speeches: How Lincoln moved the nation. Um, Lincoln is, of course, our greatest president, and uh, I think you think so. I, I certainly think so. My dad thought so, and I grew up reading about Lincoln and thinking about Lincoln. And I think uh, the more we do that, the better we'll be as a country. Uh, and so this is a, an important book and a great book by a wonderful scholar who we are really honored to have be part of our institution. So, Diana, thank you for being here. So uh, you've selected three, and we're not going to talk about why these three and not some others, but we'll just we'll go with the premise that these are the three greatest, the Lyceum Address, the Gettysburg Address, and, of course, the Second Inaugural. And what I thought we'd do is we'd go through them one at a time. And so uh, I'll start off by saying that uh, the Lyceum Address is, uh, of the three, the more obscure, not really obscure, but just not as well known. And there's a lot in it about mobs and anger and passion and and things that sound a little bit like things that sometimes happen in Washington or have been happening in Washington. How do you relate? First, give us a little intro to the Lyceum speech. And then also, how do you relate what Lincoln says there to what we're going through in America today? Yeah, I, I do think that of these three speeches, uh, this is the one that people immediately see the relevance of. I have students read this speech in many of the courses that I teach, and they're just uh, astonished at the accuracy of the diagnosis. So this is uh, the young Lincoln um, really diagnosing these um, dangers of democracy, uh, and especially the dangers of uh, unleashed passions. So he sees a growing disregard for the law around him uh, on sort of all sides. And this is leading to mob action. And I think it's important to note that the mob action is is not taking the form of, you know, sort of riot and looting, although that is also occurring. Uh, it's really taking the form of vigilante justice. Uh, so, uh, Lincoln recognizes that these passions, and especially the passion of anger, is actually connected to the quest for justice. And people are now seeking justice outside of the rule of law <laughs> and outside of the orderly procedures of self-government. So he's very worried by that phenomenon. And I think if we look at you know what's uh, <laughs> our own situation, we can see that kind of vigilanteism uh, occurring. 
so I think the diagnosis is spot on, uh, and he doesn't just diagnose what's going on. He uh, offers a solution, and he really um, pleads with Americans to return to uh, law and order, and not just law-abidingness, but a particular attitude towards that law-abidingness. He tries to encourage reverence for the Constitution and the law. So I think at this point in American history, he still believes that uh, fidelity to the Constitution uh, could can really be the solution to all of our problems, and he's trying to encourage that that spirit of reverence and fidelity. And so, this question of faith in the institutions and 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 respect for uh, the rule of law is an open question in the United States now among some parts of both fringes of, yeah. of our parties. Um, and I just want to be clear: it, it's it, it it's it's a it, how important is it to self-government? Uh, it's absolutely essential, <laughs> and and that's the argument that he really makes in this Lyceum address. Uh, he says that if this kind of degeneration continues, uh, that eventually the very best citizens will become alienated from our form of government, and they will turn to you know the 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 strong man uh, to deliver. <laughs> to deliver order. They will really give up on the project of self-government. So he's really concerned about the alienation of affection on the part of citizens, and especially on the part of the best citizens. Now, during the, the, the chapter on the Lyceum Address, you have a, I don't want to call it a digression because it might disparage it in some way, uh, uh, about... Uh, <laughs> Digressions are very important in Lincoln. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> Always the heart of the matter are yeah, the digressions. Right. Well, you yeah. have a digression yeah. on uh, uh, Malcolm X and Dr. King and Lincoln. Yeah. And could you just explain that? What, what, what were you trying to say about the three different views of, of civil disobedience and the way to address a serious injustice in our country that does need to be um, advocated against. Yeah. So uh, Lincoln's speech um, contains a section where he says that we have to obey all laws religiously, even bad laws. And so he says, I I fully recognize that there can be bad laws, unjust laws. Uh, Lincoln is writing at a time when the fugitive slave law was in effect. I mean, there's no clearer example of a bad law. To Uh, him as well. Yeah, and to him as well. Uh, And yet he says we have to obey this until we can get it changed through the um, all of the mechanisms that are offered for democratic citizens to change bad laws. Uh, you know, rights of uh, speech and press and assembly uh, and rights of petition and so on. So there are all kinds of ways uh, to to work through persuading your fellow citizens to change bad laws. And he insists on that. And it seems to me he allows for no wiggle room there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Lincoln is really in disagreement with Martin Luther King Jr. in the letter from Birmingham jail where King tries to say, you know, an unjust law is no law at all, and there can be a respectful and reverential way to disobey laws, (laughs) civil disobedience. And I believe that Lincoln is saying there is no such thing as civil disobedience. All disobedience is uncivil and destructive of civil government. Mm. 
so there's a really intense matchup between our two greatest moral lights, mm. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. And I think it's really important for all Americans to really work through that um, that debate between the two of them uh, and to do so really with an open mind because I suspect that our sympathies are now more on the side of King. We've all become convinced that there is such a thing as civil disobedience. Uh, but I, I think it's Im, Im, important to go back to Lincoln. And, the, and then the way that Malcolm X comes into this is, uh, actually, I think he agrees with Lincoln. Uh, and he also says that there is no halfway house. There is either obedience uh, or there is revolution. And there are times where revolution is warranted. And you have to make an assessment. Are these violations of rights so severe, so deep-seated? Uh, that they justify uh, acts of violence and revolution. Well, just in defense of Dr. King for a moment, um, he always used to say that that you can be civil, you can be disobedient to the law, but you must accept the consequences. Isn't that correct? I mean, he 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 does say that. Uh, yes, um, that's that seems to me still not sufficient. Um, I, I remember during the—I I don't really—I actually do remember this because I was such a interesting little kid. But, <laughs> but in the 1960s, when the uh, uh, students were protesting the war and they would burn their draft cards or they do things, um, Robert Kennedy used to say, "Well, they can do that, but they—the ones I really respect are the ones who accept the consequences and you know pay the price for being disobedient of the law." It was the people that thought they could do that and also avoid the consequences that irritated him. But you don't make that distinction. You don't. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I don't. Um, I, I think it's also worth pointing out in this in defense of King, uh, much of what King did, much, much of what the movement did, in fact, did not involve any disobedience at all. Things like boycotts, uh, all kinds of mass action don't involve any sort of disobedience. And in fact, even, uh, you know, Rosa Parks, uh, that actually is not an instance of civil disobedience either. That's a constitutionally allowable testing of a law, uh, you know, testing uh, mm -hmm. whether state law is not in contradiction to federal law or or, consti or constitutional law. Uh, so there is a, a kind of institutional form of, of civil disobedience uh, that is offered through judicial review. But just to close this out on Lyceum uh, address um, and make it very clear to uh, the, the current context. So how does your reading of Lincoln uh, leads you to see how he would react to people who are still now saying um, uh, Joe Biden didn't win the election and we should we should treat him as a sort of illegitimate president. Uh, yeah, well, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that, in fact, I guess was the claim of the secessionists <laughs> that, uh, you know, that they weren't going to accept uh, Lincoln as their as their president. Uh, it's ab absolutely essential that we accept the results of perfectly constitutional elections. Um, now, that's not to say that, you know, one is entitled to one's opinion. If you think there were irregularities, fine. Uh, try to bring that to people's attention. Try to persuade them of that. Uh, operate the through the courts yeah. uh, to challenge things. State legislatures. Uh, all of that seems yeah. to me uh, perfectly uh, perfectly allowable. Uh, an assault on, the, you know, the nation's capital is, is not allowable. Okay, let's turn to the Gettysburg Address. Um, and Phoebe, I'm going to let you get in here because if you don't, if I don't, uh, <laughs> you're never going to get a question in unless you really 
you know, I know. take I'll over. I'll muscle my way. As you can tell, I'm very into this topic. So I'm trying to <laughs> no, this restrain myself. So go ahead, Phoebe. Okay. So my first question on the Gettysburg Address, and kind of Lyceum too, really, as we're bridging. But I think, um, you know, we hear all this rhetoric all the time. We've never been more divided. We're more polarized than ever. I'm just curious what your perspective is, having spent so much time in this era and researching this. Are we more divided than ever, or are you almost reassured by the fact that this just happens continually? This is part of our system of government. How worried are you? Yeah, well, we are not as divided as we were on the eve of the Civil War. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, right. I think I think that's true, and I I don't think we're exactly getting there either. So m- my concern is not really about Civil War. I, I mean, I can't really think of another issue that had all of the elements that slavery had to divide the nation. You know, mm-hmm. a fundamental moral question uh, that coincided with a geographic division, a very clear uh, geographic division, uh, that also involved a, a question of the nature of our regime. Uh, In in a way, what was going on in the South was regime change. So I I don't see any issue that's going to bring all of those three things together and eventuate in civil war. Um, On the other hand, I think the analysis of the Lyceum Address really does remain relevant. And uh, I think there is a very serious alienation of affection. Uh, on the part of citizens, and that we really have lost sight of the founding principles. We no longer know how to think about the founding, and uh, and and that's really very serious. Uh, and Lincoln saw the seriousness of that very early. So all of his thought, uh, all of his speeches uh, throughout the 1850s, and that's why he's always going back to the founding. Uh, Americans have to get clear about what those founding principles are. And what mm-hmm. he saw is that you had people on both sides who were now denying the founding principles, who were uh, ripping apart the Declaration and the Constitution, no longer seeing the way in which those two documents are related to one another and dependent on one another, inform one another. Uh, and uh, you had others who were reinterpreting those documents. Uh, And in a way, Lincoln thought that that was the more insidious danger. So what Stephen Douglas was doing, uh, what uh, Roger Tawney was doing in reinterpreting the founding documents in the direction of a white supremacist reading of those documents, uh, rather than a a, a universalist understanding of equality. Uh, So um, I, I, I think that Lincoln's project still really has to be our project. Um, we need um, to think through I, those founding principles and figure out what they mean for us today. Right. When I heard you sort of say in the ways in which there wasn't any other significant issue that had the same div- divisive quality of slavery, um, I it, I was thinking of my friends in the Right to Life movement. And, yeah. and I just wondered whether you, you would acknowledge that for some that is a very serious breach of what they viewed as our founding principle. Yes, I, I do think that is the only issue that has similar moral weight uh, to, to slavery. And so I think it is... Uh, yeah, yeah, one it's, of my it, views it's, of that is that there are some people who, who wants that, who feel so strongly about that, that then all the other things just just build on top of that and make them more likely to be 
alienated from our, from our yeah economy. so it, it is a kind of single form of single issue politics and you could say that Lincoln had a single issue mm-hmm. <laughs> for him that issue was was slavery um, I don't, however, uh, believe that abortion could ever lead to civil war in the way that, that, that slavery did, so that there are differences between those two issues that make, make civil war uh, impossible over that issue. So the Gettysburg Address, um, uh, 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 I want to ask you about uh, uh, the all men are created equal and all hail to Jefferson. He doesn't say that. He says that another. Yeah, all honor to Jefferson. All honor to yeah. Jefferson. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, just let's clear one simple thing up from your from from your perspective. Or uh, created equal and ending up equal are not the same thing. So how, how do you respond to those who say we failed the test of Lincoln um, because of the inequality in America? Yeah. Um... Uh, that's right. There's a difference between natural rights and civil rights. And part of what we have to figure out is what does the existence of natural rights mean for what our political order should look like and be directed towards. So you can look at what Lincoln says in that first sentence of the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> this is a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So he is, in a way, saying there this is something we have to be dedicated to, uh, dedicated to the realization, the living out of that insight into human equality. Um, I, I think one of the places to look for how Lincoln understood the equality principle uh, is to look at what he says in the Dred Scott speech. It's the longest explication that he gives of the meaning of the Declaration. And he goes back to the founders and he said, okay, what, what did they mean by this? And he says, well, yeah, they clearly didn't mean to assert that all were then enjoying that equality. <laughs> you have a natural right to equality. It doesn't mean you are yet enjoying it. And he also says, you know, they couldn't immediately place everyone on a footing of equality. Uh, the founders didn't do that with respect to all, all whites. Uh, he says they had no power to do that uh, with respect to, to blacks or to the uh, enslaved uh, black population. Uh, but what he argues is that that equality principle serves as a standard maxim. In other words, it, it is what should guide our political action, the attempt to realize it. Now, that doesn't end all debates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we see there are debates right now, some who say, yeah, equality is not enough. What we need is equity. And uh, as I understand it, this uh, appeal to equity means we need departures from kind of pure equality uh, in order to really instantiate uh, fairness. Right. So there will be ongoing debates about this. Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, it seems like you could kind of characterize um, the risks to people's understanding of founding principles kind of by either like ignorance or irreverence these days. Um, so, I mean, which of the two do you think is more of a danger at this point that people just don't read the founding documents, they don't study them, um, those who are not in your classes? Um, or is it this kind of deliberate attack saying that because these things were written at a time when people were not equal, slavery, uh, founders owning slaves, uh, you know, that means that all these principles were corrupt from the beginning? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, that's a nice uh, way of thinking about it. Uh, And both of those things are present. And I think what's happening is that those who are hostile to the founding, uh, who view the founding in a very cynical way, who view the founding the way the 1619 Project does, yeah. as you know, it's uh, racism is in the nation's DNA. It's been there from the beginning, and it's all racism through and through, structural racism, and that's it. Uh, that 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 um, position of hostility. Uh, they are the ones who are increasingly in charge of educating the ignorant. Right, right. <laughs> and, yeah, and, very connected. And, and so, you know, the students I get are already uh, very biased mm-hmm. uh, against the founding. Mm-hmm. But the way through that is just to return to those original texts, actually put students in contact with them. Right. Uh, you don't need a counter indoctrination. Yeah. You need uh, an open-minded examination of those original texts. And I think if you really, um, I don't know, just put that before students and let them work through it, they will, they will arrive at a different position. One of the things that you point out in the speech in the book is uh, you do a, a, a little work on the grammar of Lincoln, which I love, <laughs> and you chart his use of subjects. And you also, and I just wanted to try this out on you, you describe his his way of of starting a speech or 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 it beginning in a way that sort of says, "I'm not going to tell you something really important here." This, this is, you know, the, we, you know, the whole thing about people won't remember what we say here at Gettysburg. And then he uh-huh. says something that, of course, we've remembered through the ages. And I just wondered about his humility as a speaker, his use of we, not I. I just wondered if you, a writer, if, if you've thought about his style and, and could give us a little sense of why his style is both high-flown high, high but also humble, very American and not... There's no arrogance in Lincoln. I, what? How does he do it? Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, I think he is always practicing this subordination of self uh, in his speeches, uh, and it's it's very visible in both the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. Uh, in fact, I argue that in the Second Inaugural, his suppression of self actually comes at the cost of grammar. <laughs> he actually <laughs> writes an ungrammatical sentence because he doesn't want to use the word I. So he has a misplaced modifier. Yeah, grammatical. Yeah. Grammar fans are loving this, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I mean, I think it's also the case that part of his reason for doing this is because he knows that his presence is actually a trigger for a large part of the population who don't like him. <laughs> so um, he, 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 he does that in the service of trying to get his audience to think not about personality, uh, but about the principles at stake. So you see him always trying to move his audience to the discussion of principles uh, and to rise above personality, to rise above you know the, the politics of personal attack. So you see this even in the 1850s when you know he, he clearly is uh, engaging in some of that politics of personal attack. I mean, he, he, he mocks Senator Douglas, he satirizes him. I mean he's, he's willing to use those tools of rhetoric. Uh, but, but it does seem to me that he is also always trying to move the discussion to the level of principle. 
he's you know he's an interesting combination of poet, president, and politician. I mean, remember that, that he's also in the business of persuading. So using his homespun charm has ha- helped him, right? I mean, it, it played a role. Oh, in his sure. Success. His use of the yeah, little little stories, homely stories, humor, all of those things. Yeah, yeah. He had the uh, the, the the full panoply of you know the, the tools of the trade. So going from the, um, the, the fun of President Lincoln to the really horror, we turn to the second inaugural, which is an amazing speech. And um, I wanted to just ask you to um, uh, tell us, uh, is he saying explicitly, this horrible war is the price we're paying for the crime of slavery? Yeah, he does that quite explicitly in the third paragraph. Um, I think when people think about the second inaugural, they go immediately to the final paragraph, the fourth paragraph, you know, with malice toward none, with charity for all, you know, let us strive on, uh, repair the nation's wounds, heal the nation's wounds, that. That's the call to action. But it does seem to me that the way he gets to that amazing fourth paragraph and that call to action is through this theological interpretation of the war that he offers in the third paragraph, the very long third paragraph. Um, and uh, you're right. The, what what he says there is that um, this is God's punishment of the nation for the sin of American slavery. And it is a sin which is being meted out to both North and South. So I I think that that theological interpretation has a political purpose. Uh, He believes that if Americans are willing to embrace that understanding of the war, that that will clear the space for the exercise of human charity and 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 human action, reparative human action, uh, so that that interpretation is really put forth to try to diffuse northern arrogance, right? The North is ready to blame the South for the war, hold them accountable, persecute them, uh, uh, you know, uh, treat them as the traitors that they were. <laughs> and uh, Lincoln wants to diffuse that. Uh, he also wants to, I think, by saying we all share in this, the nation shares in this sin, uh, he wants to make it more likely that the South will actually admit the sin. And he knows that they are, um, you know, many of them are quite unwilling to do that, but he's trying to make it uh, easier for them to do that, to admit the sin. Um, so he's trying to address the sectional issue. He's also trying to address, I think, very much so the racial issue, that he's looking forward to the dilemmas of Reconstruction um, uh, so that he is, uh, he's trying to encourage humility on the part of, of whites. Uh, and he is, in a way, offering something to blacks. Uh, he's saying that God was on the side of the slaveholders all along. I'm sorry, on the side of the slaves all along, not on the side of the slaveholders. Uh, And this is an official acknowledgement by the President of the United States that that is the case. Uh, So that is the beginning of um, of a, you know, a new new place uh, from which the nation can go forward. 
So let's just take a little bit from that third paragraph because you do say several times in the book that you just keep reading the text. Read it over and over again. (laughs) Right. So fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That is a remarkable couple of sentences. And it is a, it is a judgment. And it's, 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 um, it's, I was going to say horrifying. I mean, uh, it, it is. I mean, it's a it's a blood for blood vision right, of divine reparations. Uh, what God might demand of the United States, and God would be justified if He exacted that full blood price. Um, I think it's also significant that if you do the math there, 250 years, uh, Lincoln takes us back to 1619. Uh, He is very aware of the origin date of American slavery. He's aware of how long this injustice has continued. It predates the existence of the United States. But he, in a way, says it's still somehow part of American slavery. Uh, It's ours. We have to own it. so I, I actually read this as, as Lincoln's 1619 address. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think it's a, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a better 1619 project than the one that we've been given by the, by the New York Times. Uh, that what Lincoln tries to do is put these dates to, t- to, to really understand the proper relationship between these significant American dates. What is the relationship between 1619, 1776, the Declaration, uh, and, and 1787, the Constitution? And Lincoln sees 1776 as the antithesis of 1619. So yes, 1619 has this enduring uh, significance and legacy that we have to deal with, but the way you deal with it is through those principles that were articulated in 1776. You write in the book, Lincoln reads our national story as a struggle between the principles of natural right enshrined in the Declaration and the Constitution and the violation of those principles in American slavery beginning in 1619 and spiraling down to its nadir in 1861. In the second inaugural, Lincoln makes God himself the vindicator and upholder of those principles of right. It's a good book. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let me just say, though, that what God has done does not remove the necessity for future human action. So he, he does stress what God has done in upholding that, but that in a way uh, is further inspiration for us to live out those principles ourselves. So that, that's a good way to uh, sort of come to an end because it, I turned to, to Phoebe and Phoebe's generation and, and sort of Lincoln as understood yeah. it during his time and Americans' understanding of these things during our time. And I just, you know, this is a, Lincoln was a, was a, a big-time thinker and a big-time writer, and he was a politician, too. It's hard for me to believe that Americans were smarter back then, that they could understand him and follow him and have 
the depth of understanding that would lead him to be able to lead them. Uh, but is that true? I mean, what what is the nature of our political dialogue? You would, if you look at our political dialogue today, and compare it to then, you'd say, "Boy, we've really gone backwards." Is that right? Well, yes and no. <laughs> I uh, I do believe there has been decline, um, but Lincoln thought there was decline in his day. Well, the so, liter- just, so that- just a simple thing. The literacy rate then and now are not the same. Or maybe they are. I mean, maybe people are... Oh, that was a, uh, that was a very literate... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, and if you look at his speeches, I mean, they are very demanding. I mean, the speeches from the 1850s yeah. uh, are very demanding, and yet people showed up in great numbers yeah, and yeah. stood for three hours at a time yeah, right. you know, to listen yeah. to Lincoln and Douglas go go back and forth. Um, so, I, I mean, I do believe all of that stuff about, you know, our declining attention spans and all of that, uh, but we have to fight against it, and the best way to fight against it is to return to the oratory of, of Lincoln's day and, and of the Founders' day. So uh, I do think if it's put before students, they respond to it. They want to come up to the come up to the mark. Uh, Phoebe, do you have anything more to ask before we close? Um, I guess is there anything else that comes to mind for you to um, kind of counter this alienation um, that people just feel alienated from the founding texts, um, kind of from the system of government? Are there any other ways that we can encourage them to buy back in? Yeah, I don't think it can be done without really confronting this uh, question about the status of slavery at the time of the founding. It is very difficult to get students to take Federalist Papers seriously and to care about the separation of powers and all of that mechanical stuff uh, if they are harboring this fundamental moral reservation about the founding generation. So I think it really has to be the beginning point, right? Are we ashamed of our founding or not? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, how should, we, how should we think of it? And it doesn't mean that, you know, we're just going to whitewash it or we're going to achieve a kind of complete vindication of the founders. Uh, we really have to go into it and just raise that question and, and confront it and think it through. Uh, but but Lincoln is an invaluable resource in showing how to think about the founding, and 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 the degree and the way in which they can be vindicated. So this involves not only questions of principle, but questions of prudence, and the relationship between principle and prudence. So Lincoln is really helpful in thinking about how you can be both a principled politician and a and a prudential one. Uh, so you see it in him, and and he shows us what it looks like at the time of the founding. To me, there's a real irony there in that um, the the despite our efforts and success at eradicating slavery and making our system of government more true or practice of self-governance more true to our original founding principles, um, that failure in the beginning still plagues our ability to have the appropriate reverence for our constitution and and we really have to get by that and or help students get by that and see see not only what they were aspiring to as well as what we together with lincoln's help and many others have accomplished yeah 
This has been a great conversation. Thank you all for listening. And Diana, thank you for writing a wonderful book. Thank you. Hello. My name's Christopher Scalia. I'm director of academic programs at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'd like to tell you about AEI's Summer Honors Program. The Summer Honors Program is an immersive learning experience in which exceptional undergraduates of all political stripes spend a week studying policy with top scholars, participating in wide-ranging conversations with other students from various backgrounds, and learning about policy careers in Washington, D.C. This year's Summer Honors Program offers 16 week-long courses covering foreign and defense policy, domestic policy, economics, the law, and political science. Our instructors include some of AEI's most renowned scholars, as well as distinguished college professors. This year's instructors include AEI's Yuval Levin, Corey Shockey, Michael Strain, James Capretta, Tim Carney, Brent Orell, Angela Rashidi, Michael Rubin, and John Yu. Six of the courses are offered through AEI's Initiative on Faith and Public Life and will integrate Christian faith, theology, and ethics into discussions about economics, public policy, and society. And did I mention that the program is fully funded? We cover travel costs and provide lodging, meals, and we offer a stipend. So if you're an undergraduate who's eager to study policy with renowned experts and to engage in substantive conversations with other students, or if you know a college student who fits that bill, I encourage you to take a look at our full list of courses and instructors and to learn more about this opportunity by visiting our website. Just Google AEI Summer Honors Program. But don't delay. The final deadline for applications is March 1st, 2022. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.